strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please have a seat. Uh, uh, not that chair. Uh, any of the others. I do apologize, but that one's not for sitting. Uh, Wilkinson sat in that... No, uh, this uh, Wilkinson here, uh, my valet, that is. Pleased to meet you. He serves as reader for our little show for any direct quotations from any of the books we pull. His voice seems uh, to work particularly well with some of the more archaic language. I wouldn't trust anyone else with the duty, honestly. Thank you, sir. Same with uh, handling the books. He's very careful, very good with our gloves-on rule. You did explain the gloves to our guest? Yes, we went through the checklist. He declined the gloves. Now his choice, of course. I know it seems like a lot of rules, but there's plenty to see here without pawing the books. It's a library, not a petting zoo, after all. I explained that the gloves were a standard procedure for protecting archival materials. Well, to protect the reader, too. Uh, this book here, for instance. Uh, the cover could have been colored with dyes made from arsenic. It was very common in the 19th century. It's best not to touch things, like that chair. Perhaps I should just move the thing to the basement. Just leave it. I mean, I, I only mean since it tends to confuse people, a chair you can't sit in? Yes, that's the effect it has. It's just peculiar. Best to leave it alone. Really, it's a perfectly good chair. I used to sit in it all the time. Yes, and I don't want to revisit that sitting about when there's work to do. You weren't yourself. It was difficult seeing you like that with the chair. I just thought if it were out of sight, it would... And even now, it's stirring things up. I was thinking of just burning it to be safe. Uh, but it seemed a shame. It was expensive. It's a... Chesterfield, you know, 1840s. Of course, they're more known for the settees, but that's what makes the chair particularly valuable. Anyway, I just decided to have it reupholstered instead. It's a handsome pattern. The lines complement the form. And it's a good conversation piece. Anyway, we have a show to do, so let's get on with it. Episode 9, Cave Witches. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and our topic is generally the intersection and intertwining of folklore and the horror genre, and a bit of relevant history. Um, I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm researching for another book uh, along similar lines. This show is supported by the generosity of Patreon donors. Uh, I'll have more information on that and how to connect with us on social media, and also about a special European Krampus tour at the end of the show. So tonight, we're talking about witches. In particular, witches associated with caves. 
Of course, the term witches is always a bit up for grabs. And in this episode, we'll cover uh, beings that might also be known as uh, seers, enchantresses, fairies, ogres, poltergeists, or even demons. We'll begin closer to home in the U.S. with the Bell Witch of Adams, Tennessee. When night rains lash the hills around Springfield, Tennessee, lightning flashes, thunder rolls down the valleys. The old-timers say the commotion up there is the Bell Witch screaming through the night for the soul of one John Bell. The Bell Witch, she walks the night. Bell Witch, the movie, opens in 1935. Do you believe the Bell Witch? Do you believe the Bell Witch? Felt like I had a cold hand run right up my damn back. The Bell Witch Cave. The Bell Witch Cave in Adams, Tennessee. I'll link sources for that little collage on the website, but uh, I probably don't need to tell you that none of them are exactly go-to sources for the documented facts of the case. Though the uh, main events of the story happened way back between 1817 and 1821, you can tell from that little collage that America has clearly not forgotten the Bell Witch. Now, if you haven't heard of her, I should probably first clear up what's really meant by witch here. It was more of a poltergeist or troublemaking spirit that plagued the farm of the John Bell family. It's a little hard to pin down, a bit of a shape shifter possibly, as the first anomalies the family noticed were a black two-headed creature, dog-like creature, and an enormous bird menacing the farm. Soon enough, knockings and noises like dragging chains, gnawing animals, and fighting dogs were heard in the bell cabin. The children complained of being scratched and having their hair pulled or having the sheets ripped from their beds as they slept. And next a voice was heard, feeble and faint at first, like an old woman singing hymns. But eventually, there were conversations. When asked to identify itself, the thing responded, saying that it was once very happy, but had been disturbed. Later, it claimed, among other things, that the desecration of a Native American burial mound nearby had brought it into this earthly realm. When it was suggested that it might be related to an eccentric or unpopular neighbor, Kate Batts, who had recently died, it did identify itself as... Oh, Kate Batts' witch. Henceforth, known as the Bell Witch, or Kate the Witch, eventually drew crowds of curiosity seekers to the Bell Cabin, allegedly including a visit by President Andrew Jackson, whose carriage was said to have been frozen in its tracks by the witch, and only released when its presence was acknowledged. The witch reserved her worst for John Bell, and was blamed for a mysterious ailment causing him facial twitching, paralysis of the mouth, and a general decline in health. Even in his invalid state, she continued slapping and tripping him as he struggled to walk. Upon John's death, suspicion fell on the witch and a mysterious vial of black liquid found in a cupboard. When given to the family cat, it's said to have caused a quick death. And when thrown into the fireplace, it shot up the chimney in a blue burst of flame. The witch was delighted with it all, claiming, 
I gave old chap a big dose of that last night, which fixed him. After Belle's death, the spirit mostly stopped its torments, though it did object to daughter Betsy Bell's choice of fiancé, enough for the engagement to be called off. After the witch withdrew from the Bell cabin, folklore has it that she took up residence in a cave on the property. The first documented reference to this is in the 1934 book, The Bell Witch, A Mysterious Spirit, by John Bell's great-grandson, Charles Bell, which elaborates upon earlier accounts based upon uh, stories allegedly told to the author by his uh, elderly great-aunt, John Bell's daughter, Betsy. In it, she recalls an outing to explore the cave when a boy in her group became stuck in a hole. A voice was heard to exclaim, I'll get him out. The boy felt ghostly hands seize his feet and yank him from the hole. The spirit then delivered a lengthy warning to the children about their foolhardy adventures in the cave and cave safety. In 1937, the owner of what had been the Bell Farm reported uh, mysterious noises issuing from the cave. And later that year, a Methodist youth group on a nighttime outing nearby reported a woman perched on the cliff overlooking the cave, causing many to flee. In 1977, another report came from a military recruit from uh, nearby Fort Campbell. After expressing disbelief in the legend, he felt himself clutched by invisible hands. And in 1986, a reporter planning to document an overnight vigil in the cave aborted his venture when he heard an unwavering groan, followed by loud thumps a phenomenon that repeated with increasing ferocity. Now to England, where for centuries tourists have visited this cave in the historic market town of Knaresborough in North Yorkshire. entered this legendary cave where over 500 years ago... It was the birthplace and home of Old Mother Shipton, England's answer to Nostradamus. Born Ursula Sontile in 1488 and married at the age of 24 to one Tobias Shipton, uh, though childless, she uh, was known as Mother, which was given as a common title of respect at the time for older women. Uh, much of the rest of her life is shrouded in legends and myth, uh, spun out of the more than 50 different biographies and collections of her prophecies published since the mid-1600s. The stories usually begin with her birth in the cave amid a terrible thunderstorm. The baby, as it emerges with twisted back and legs, grows more horrible with the years. According to one volume from 1687, her head was very long, with very great goggling, but sharp and fiery eyes. Her nose was of an incredible and unproportionable length, having in it many crooks and turnings. Her cheeks were of a black, swarthy complexion, much like a mixture of black and yellow jaundice, wrinkled, shriveled, and very hollow. Her chin was of the same complexion as her face, turning up towards her mouth. Though ultimately denied a churchyard burial for her unorthodox ways, Shipton was also sought out by many in the community, more awed than fearful of her soothsaying and folk remedies and 
herbal cures. The cave, which is home to bats and the occasional sighting of Shipton's ghost, also has an adjacent wishing well, a geological oddity known as the petrifying well. Its waters, which appear to turn objects to stone, have fascinated the British since 1630 when it opened as the oldest entrance charging tourist attraction in England. The ledge overhanging the well from which trickles water, particularly rich with sulfate and uh, carbonate, is uh, perpetually hung with uh, old shoes, uh, toys, kitchenware and the like, undergoing this uh, peculiar transformation. Uh, teddy bears, which take about three months to harden, are a particularly popular item in the site's gift shop. While there is some doubt as to the authorship of Shipton's prophecies, they do seem to often foretell future events, including automobiles and auto accidents. Carriages without horses shall go, and accidents fill the world with woe. Steel hulls ships. Iron will float on water as easy as a wooden boat. Mass communications and the internet. Thoughts will travel around the world in the twinkling of an eye. There are many more, and I'll have a website linked to the rest so you can judge for yourself. Another of England's witchy caves, also a tourist attraction, can be found about 25 miles north of Glastonbury. Wookie Hole, named for the nearby Somerset village of Wookie, is uh, home to a stalagmite which if you squint, may resemble the hook-nose, long-chinned profile of a witch. A poem written by a Dr. Harrington of Bath in 1756 sets the scene. Deep in the dreary, dismal cell, which seemed and was akin to hell, this blear-eyed hag did hide. Nine wicked elves, as is the saying, she chose to form her guardian train, and in a kennel near her side, here screeching owls oft made their nest, while wolves its craggy sides possessed. Having once been jilted herself and ill-disposed young lovers, the witch uh, curses an engaged couple, causing them to break off the engagement. Years later, after joining a Glastonbury monastery, the monk remembers this uh, thwarted romance, and seeks out the witch in her cave with its underground stream. Harrington's poem continues. He chanted out his godly book, he crossed the water, blessed the brook, then paternaster done, the ghastly hag he sprinkled o'er, when lo, where stood a hag before, now stood a ghastly stone. That the legend was taken seriously is borne out by the recent discovery of witch markings, about 50 carvings made in the walls to ward off evil. Dated to somewhere between the mid-16th to mid-18th century, they most frequently call on the Blessed Virgin for protection, as evidenced by the many sets of double V's scratched in the walls invoking the Virgin of Virgins. Further north in England, in a cave in Leicestershire's Dane Hills, another frightful female spirit was said to abide. 
black anise. She was sent to await her prey, usually children, either in her cave or crouched in the branches of a huge oak at the cave's entrance. Uh, she's first described in print in Black Annis's Bower, a 1797 poem by John Herrick. Tis said this thing, all men reviled, to view Black Annis' eye so fierce and wild, vast talons foul with human flesh, there grew in place of hands, and features livid blue glared in her visage, while the obscene waste warm skins of human victims close embraced. Cottage windows in Leicestershire were said to have been made particularly small, so this hag wearing the skins of flayed children could only reach a, a single arm through the small opening. And Protective herbs were also fixed to doors and windows to bar her entry. In some tales, she is Cat Annis, a monstrous black feline haunting both the cave and cellars of nearby Leicester Castle, traversing the distance between the two in secret tunnels. In northern Spain, near the French border, in the heavily Basque province of Navarre, in the small town of Zaguramordi, is a rather large cave that played a rather large role in uh, Spanish witchcraft history. It's also featured prominently in the 2013 Spanish horror comedy Las Brujas de Zugamordi, uh, or The Witches of Zugamordi, released to uh, English-speaking audiences under the unfortunate title Witching and Bitching. It's mostly entertaining and makes great use of the song you're hearing, uh, Baba Biga Higa, uh, the title and lyrics of which are mostly nonsensical, onomatopoeia suggesting a magical spell. It's a rhyme from Basque folklore set to a tune in 1960 by Basque uh, singer-songwriter Mikel Laboe. Zugamordi was the focus for the largest witch hunt ever conducted. Trials began in the area in 1609, and by the conclusion of investigations in 1611, some 7,000 cases had been examined, with 2,000 confessing to attending witches' sabbaths, though most of these were eventually uh, recanted. All horrible enough, though it should be pointed out that of the 7,000 investigated, only 11 were put to death. Spanish churchmen maintained a relatively skeptical attitude towards witchcraft, and the notorious uh, Spanish Inquisition was actually much more concerned with rooting out heresy within the church. The turmoil of the period is documented in a witchcraft museum housed in the old village hospital, and a reenactment of the trials, along with something of the imagined witchcraft rituals, are held in the cave each St. John's Eve. In the 1887 volume, Legends and Popular Tales of the Basque People, a witch's Sabbath is rather fancifully uh, described. Participants arrive by air, flying shadowy forms, riding broomsticks, uh, owls, uh, monstrous beasts. All these shadows were so many forms of decrepit old women. Their faces, blackened and wrinkled, were repulsive. 
while their hideous bodies inspired disgust. Their short, matted hair and fleshless limbs were truly fearful to see. They were all ranged in a circle, huddled up close together around the throne of Ebony, upon which was seen calmly sitting an enormous he-goat. From this throne gleamed a few rays of yellow light, the only light which illumined the scene. In Segura Mordi, Sabbaths were said to have been held partially inside and particularly in the field immediately outside the cave, an outer section of which served as a sort of altar with the focus being on a small hole in the cave wall, like a window, uh, in which the devil would make his appearance. Another section of the caverns on the east side is also known as the Cave of the Witches, and the main gallery contains a subterranean stream called the Gutter or River of Hell. The Basque name Akalare for the field in front of the cave where Sabbaths were supposedly held has been taken up uh, as the general Spanish word for Witches' Sabbath, being used, for instance, by Goya as the title of his uh, 1798 painting of the subject. The name Akalare in Basque means field of the he-goat. Aker, or he-goat, or Akerbels, meaning black he-goat, is also the name of a pagan spirit of the region, one obviously taking the form of a black he-goat and mistaken for the devil. Uh, belief in the region saw the figure simply as a helpful spirit, encouraging fertility and protecting domestic animals. Even to this day, a black male goat is often kept on Basque farms to ensure the animal's safety. Akerbels was said to control storms and served by either witches or elves who could add hail to the storm by cutting the beard from a goat. There's even a Basque saying to this day, they have cut the billy goat's beard this afternoon, it's going to hail. While all of this is really uh, more in the realm of casual folk belief or superstition, it does seem that Akerbels uh, figured into a more formal pagan religion. One that could, in this case, actually provide some factual basis for the sort of vestigial pagan cult that in the 17th century could have been interpreted as a witch's coven. A 3rd century slab inscribed in Latin to the god Akerbels attests to the figure as an object of a more serious form of worship. Sometimes Acker is regarded as a male aspect of the Basque goddess Mari, whose rituals were traditionally celebrated in caves and led by female priestesses known as Sorgenach. The generally discredited notion that the witches uh, combated by the church in the early modern era represented the survival of a pagan cult uh, certainly begins to feel a bit more plausible when all this is considered. Sorgonok, by the way, is the name of the band you are hearing in the background, an all-female group performing traditional Basque music on traditional instruments. Our final two cases are from Italy. Like Mother Shipton, they are seers of the future, but in a classical mode the Apennine and the Cumaean Sibyls. Now, the Sibyls were female oracles, seers, whose uh, prophetic utterances usually were associated with a sort of divine madness and might be challenging to puzzle out. They were found at various holy sites, quite often caves, as they represented a link to the underworld. 
The Greeks identified nine sibyls, mostly scattered through Greece and Italy, but there were also sibyls mentioned in modern-day Libya, Turkey, and Iran. The Romans added a tenth in Tivoli. But the most important to them was the Cumaean sibyl, who we'll discuss shortly. Curiously, the Sibylline prophecies outlived the pagan era and were embraced in Christian culture, even entering into the church's notions of the end of the world, which is where we're ultimately headed uh, in this episode, I mean, though I suppose in broader meaning applies. Now, in central Italy, spread between Umbria and Marche, a part of the Apennine Mountains is named for Sibyl, the Sibyllini Mountains. And within that range, there is a Mount Sibylla itself. And within that mountain, according to medieval legend, the Cave of the Sibyl. The cave, at least, does exist, about 7,000 feet up, and it's called the uh, Grotta della Fata, which is Cave of the Fairies. But over the centuries, landslides have collapsed much of it, and in the early 20th century, an attempt to blast through the debris backfired, making it shallower still. Not only this cave, but the whole Sibyllini mountain region and the nearby town of Norcia were historically associated with the Sibyl or fairies and witches, all of which blended together in the folk imagination. And Norcia's reputation was so firmly fixed that during the Middle Ages, Norcian was synonymous for necromancer, and legends suggest there was a, even a sort of a school for sorcery in the town. Next to Norcia, Lago di Palato, a pilot's lake, was said to be full of demons and reputed to be a site for rituals with uh, magical books and implements dipped into the lake as a form of uh, consecration. The lake is named for the biblical Pontius Pilate, who was supposed to have been dragged here from the Holy Land by a team of oxen, leaving his body to disappear within its waters, which were thereafter cursed or became blood-colored. Apparently, drawing on local legends, Italian author Andrea de Barbarino was the first to bring to print the legend of the Sibyl of the Apennines. His story, a chivalric romance published in 1410, was called Il Guerin Meschino, or Wretched Guerin, and told the story of a rootless knight trying to find the identity of his parents. He seeks out the Sibyl, who is here named Fairy Alcina, and finds that her cave extends deep into the mountain as a series of palatial rooms and pleasure gardens. Alcina and her beautiful fairy subjects attempt to seduce the knight, but Guerin resists, aware of the lurking evil beneath the endless revels and otherworldly pleasures of the fairy kingdom. Alcina refuses him the coveted information, and after a year, he departs, seeking pardon from the Pope for his sojourn in this world of sin. In 1414, another French retelling by Antoine de La Salle appeared, and a mostly identical story was taken up by German balladeers of the 14th century. With the mountain relocated to Germany, a name of the night changed to Tannhauser, and the Sibyl transformed to Venus, the goddess of erotic love. Richard Wagner, who's a flying Dutchman, was discussed in our last episode, adapted the legend in his 1845 opera Tannhäuser. The music in the background has been the uh, Venusberg uh, music from Tannhäuser. Interestingly, in the year 2000, a team using ground-penetrating radar actually were able to detect a series of deeper caverns beyond the collapsed cave entrance on Mount Sibylla. 
suggesting that there may have been a grain of truth in the Apennine legends of uh, an extensive underground fairy world. The sibyl that played the biggest role in Roman culture was associated with a cave near Naples, the Cumaean sibyl named for Cumea, the Greek settlement on the Italian coast. She's particularly known for a story in which she offers Tarquinius, the last king of Rome, nine books containing her prophecies. He balks at the steep price, so she throws three on the fire while still demanding the original price. She repeats the stunt until the panicking king buys the last three books for the price originally asked for nine. Thereafter, the books were kept in the Temple of Jupiter and consulted in times of crisis. Another tale tells of Sybil asking Apollo for eternal life while forgetting to ask for youth. Uh, in this story, she's shriveled and shrunken over the centuries until all that is left to her hangs in a jug in her cave. When asked what she would now wish, the voice from the jug merely says, The location of the Sibyl's Cave has been sought since the Middle Ages, and by 1932, a site was officially designated as such, uh, based on the archaeologist Amedio Maiori's uh, reading of clues in uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Though some doubt remains, the setting is suitably somber, a strange trapezoidal passage over 425 feet long, leading into a chamber where the prophecies were said to have been made. It lies near Vesuvius in one of the most geologically active regions in Europe, dramatically described by the mythologist Thomas Bullfinch in 1855. The whole country is cleft with chasms from which sulfurous flames arise. While the ground is shaken with pent-up vapors, and mysterious sounds issue from the bowels of the earth. Virgil in his Aeneid describes Aeneas being led by the Sibyl into the underworld, and a clue to the cave's location is provided by a suitably infernal lake lying nearby, what he calls the Flood of Black Avernus, or the foul-smelling Gorge of Avernus. The name comes from a Greek word meaning birdless, as the fumes escaping from this lake are poisonous to birds, foolish enough to fly over. Near this infernal lake, Virgil goes on, Dark in a cave and on a rock reclined, she sings the fates, and in her frantic fits, the notes and names inscribed to leaves commits. Other writers have remarked upon the Sibyl's strange method of sharing her prophecies written on leaves, and in, in particular the fateful way she and the wind scatter these leaves. Mary Shelley, in a preface to her little red science fiction novel, The Last Man, claims to have discovered these leaves herself, editing their prophecies into the post-apocalyptic narrative she presents. As mentioned, the Sibyls were not only taken up in later fairy folklore, but also seen by many early church fathers as offering prophecies suggestive of the Messiah's birth. Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel provides evidence of this continued regard as he includes five classical sibyls painted amongst the Old Testament prophets. Uh, sibyls were also sometimes included in nativity scenes in the same way the three kings represented 
prophetic wisdom from outside the Judeo-Christian sphere. A Catholic reference to the Sibyl also exists in the hymn or Gregorian chant, Diesire, or Day of Wrath, formerly prescribed for funerals and the Feast of All Souls. It refers to end-time prophecies, both in the book of Psalms written by David, but also by the Sibyl. That day of wrath, that dreadful day, shall heaven and earth in ashes lay, as David and the Sibyl say. If it sounds familiar, it's because musicians have woven this theme into all manner of compositions where an ominous effect is desired. Its use in film is particularly prominent, showing up in everything from Friday the 13th films to the title sequence of Kubrick's The Shining. In any case, as promised, we have arrived at the end of the world and, as you may have guessed, the end of our episode. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and will continue listening to future episodes. Shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week. A possible scheduling conflict could slightly delay our next episode, but please check for it starting on Monday the 20th. We greatly appreciate all of your endorsements on social media, likes, comments, retweets, reposts, and any other way you might share our episodes and material. These and ratings or reviews you can leave on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen are especially helpful to keep the show going. Extensive show notes with images and links to music and video mentioned in the show can be found on boneandsickle.com, all one word, no ampersand. Uh, and uh, there you'll also find links to our Facebook group and Twitter account. I also have a special announcement about an eight-day Krampus tour in Austria and Bavaria, which I'll be leading this winter. We'll be visiting multiple Krampus runs in Salzburg and Graz and taking in a number of other sites along the way, graveyards, anatomy collections, and other places of interest to horror fans. For more details, please check out the tour menu on the Bone and Sickle website. On the website, you can also find a link to our Patreon page where you can support this rather labor-intensive show. Donation levels start as low as $1 a month, and uh, Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in preparation of the show, uh, episode soundscapes, and other audio, as well as my Krampus book, and a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for any sort of adulation you choose to provide. Your donations and any amount help me to continue the show as a bi-monthly release. A big thank you to recent Patreon donors Paul Buscini, Noah uh, De Vicente, Lizzie in the Lab, H.R. Price, Raul Anthony, Jonathan Riel, and uh, Pamela Fitzpatrick, who recently upped her donation level. Uh, and welcome to all our new listeners who discovered us via Monster Talk. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Uh, Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. Hmm. <laughs>